World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This summer, more than 8 million university students graduated in China. Gone are the days that the state just assigned them to jobs. It doesn't even publish statistics on their prospects anymore. There's plenty of work to be had, just not the high-flying stuff all those grads are looking for. And we take a look at experiments in the Netherlands to house students with the elderly. Despite obvious differences in lifestyles and bedtimes, it's going remarkably well. First up, though. For most of its young life, the nation of Zimbabwe has been defined by Robert Mugabe, who ruled tyrannically for 37 years. When a coup pushed him out in 2017 and his former deputy Emerson Menengagwa took over, there were celebrations and hope that things would improve. But life has only gotten worse in Zimbabwe. The government can't afford to clean reservoirs or run power stations. Devastating drought has worsened the situation. So shortages of power, food, and water are increasing. Inflation is soaring. Despite the government declaring a planned demonstration illegal, on Friday, people took to the streets to protest. We want change because we are tired of promises, promises, promises. We are tired. Enough is enough. Another demonstration is planned for today. Police have banned that one, too. People are likely to march anyway, heedless of the risk of beatings or being detained. They've had enough. I drove down to Chittangwiza, a small town outside the capital, Harare. It was nighttime and there was no power, so it was totally dark except for the lights of the cars. And I stopped by the side of the road at a well. And as soon as I got out of the car, I was surrounded by people who had been waiting quite a while to tell me how difficult things were getting. John McDermott is The Economist's Africa correspondent. He's been traveling around Zimbabwe. So I was standing next to the well, which people are using because in Zimbabwe at the moment, we're only getting clean water about once a week. And next to the well, there was a, a board up and the neighborhood committee, which is running the well, had a list of five rules. Rule one, five buckets per person. Rule two, rule two, it's just a no cleaning, no cleaning, washing of cars to try and keep the queues under control. But as you can imagine, when this basic commodity is in such short supply, things got really chaotic, 
And people were just clamoring, not only to get to the water, but also to tell me their sad stories about queuing for so long to get water. And sometimes I fail to go to work. So sometimes I fail to get the targets because of water. As you can see, there is long queues for to fetch water in bowls. Zimbabwe's been a troubled place for a long time. I mean, you've just been. To, to your mind, what's different now? It feels as if the country is going through several different crises at once. There's no clean water. There's no power for all but six hours a day. There's basically no fuel. Petrol stations either have long queues or no queues at all because there's, there's no, nothing in the tanks. And there's a looming food crisis at the same time. The World Food Programme estimates that roughly half of the country will be struggling to get one meal a day uh, by early next year. What's the cause of these problems? Well, start with the currency issue. A lot of Zimbabwe's problems come down to the fact that there's a chronic lack of hard currency, i.e. American dollars. There's just not enough liquidity in the system, which makes it difficult for, say, a mine to buy equipment or a water plant to buy chemicals in order to clean the water. When Emerson Menegagwa came to power in November 2017, he declared that Zimbabwe was open for business. This was a new type of regime. And the hope was that if he could make some progress on political reforms, then economic assistance from the West would follow. But instead, he's just made many of uh, the same mistakes that Mugabe has. He's continued to manipulate the currency. He's continued to have a really disjointed way of making economic policy, which hasn't increased trust on behalf of the business community. But most important of all, he hasn't done any of the political reforms that he said that he would do for two years now. So what essentially is happening at the moment is Zimbabwe is going through a massive cash shortage, a massive austerity program. And usually when a country has no hard currency and it's going through a massive austerity drive, it can have the IMF or the international community to help it. But because ZANU-PF hasn't done any of the political reforms it's promised, it's been left adrift and the people are suffering. Who does the government say is at fault for all this? So this government blames the weather. And Southern Africa has had a pretty bad drought. But ultimately, this is the result of misrule by the ruling party, ZANU-PF. Some of this must be traceable back through to the regime of Robert Mugabe, though. That's true. And uh, you can trace the current predicament back to at least 20 years. It was in 2000, 2001, where the Mugabe regime seized uh, white farmers' land in order to placate some of his uh, kind of former troops. And that inevitably destroyed the agricultural sector of what was once the breadbasket of the continent. And the economic mismanagement of the Mugabe era must also be casting a long shadow. Yes, of course. I mean, in 2008-9, it had a period of hyperinflation. This is when you got the printing of 100 trillion Zimbabwean dollar bills and that destroyed the savings of kind of any Zimbabwean that had had some. There was then a brief period of sanity under a government of national unity, but between 2013 and before he was toppled in 2017, he, Mugabe, returned to his kind of worst instincts and started printing money again. This time not in the form of banknotes, but through um, electronic funny money. And the current regime of Minangagwa and his finance minister 
have been trying to kind of make up for the mistakes of the past, but in doing so, they've often made mistakes of their own. And what about how the, the people are all taking this? I mean, there, there were uh, protests on, on Friday. What, what are they in aid of? What are, what are the people calling for? I went to see Tendai Biti, a former finance minister, who before we even got going on the politics, told me that things had gotten so bad that he was washing in a bucket. I'm, I'm, I'm washing in a bucket, my friend, as if I'm in, in southern Rhodesia, 1923. In Rhodesia, the colonial state that existed before Zimbabwe was a country. We are in a recession, a recession that is fast-tracking itself uh, into an economic depression. There are no disposable incomes. There's no, there's no, there's no productivity. There is no output. So after this, I said to Tendai, OK, well, everything is bad. The economy is deteriorating, but what's the solution? And his response actually was pretty stark and it struck me. The official party position is, of course, that that uh, let's dialogue, let's talk, let's create some transitional uh, government. Mm. But I think we are beyond that. This is my personal opinion. Uh, my personal opinion is that we are beyond that. So Mr. Beatty is ultimately fed up. He thinks the government is beyond redemption. It needs to collapse. And then regional governments such as South Africa need to move in and pick up the pieces. Then we have a proper free and fair election. And then exactly gives, the electorate gives a clean mandate to a new leadership. Anything else will be delaying the implosion. Anything else will be papering over the cracks. It's too far gone. So what, what can the, the, the current leadership, what can Mr. Menengagwa do about any of this? How much of it is uh, a sort of uh, problems he has inherited that are insuperable? I don't think any of Zimbabwe's problems are insuperable. There is a clear path to normalization. It's the same one that has been there since he took over in November 2017. If he can show that his regime is different from Robert Mugabe's, if he can do some of the political reforms that the West has demanded there will be financial support for Zimbabwe to get out of the economic mess. As one diplomat said, the, the option is still on the table. The problem is that it's very difficult for Menegagwa and ZANU-PF to continue to loot the country and steal from its people while also liberalising its politics. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Thank you, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. China's economy, buffeted by the trade war with America, is growing at its slowest pace in nearly 30 years. And for Chinese students, this is especially bad news. Two-thirds of all workers joining China's labor force this year are graduates. Chinese universities produced a record 8.3 million of them this summer. That's more than the entire population of Hong Kong. Another half a million will return from foreign institutions. Chinese students didn't always have to worry about finding work. As recently as the early 1990s, the Chinese government simply assigned graduates to jobs. James Yan is The Economist's Beijing correspondent. 
Today, the government no longer dictates people's lives in this way, but it is clearly worried about what will happen to graduates if they don't find work. Last month, five central government agencies warned local governments that the employment of graduates was linked with, quote, overall social stability. We've seen such warnings periodically. Uh, These warnings have been made since at least 2011. But what's interesting is that this year, rather unusually, the public security ministry attached its name to the public notice. And it's unlikely that this worry will go away anytime soon. So what's the effect of having um, such a, a glut in the job market? Official statistics on the employment status of fresh graduates stopped being released sometime around 2010. We don't know the reason for this, but one academic I spoke to suspects that it had become too obvious that the official figures had been doctored and hence unreliable. But having said that, unofficial figures do exist. These figures are based on surveys conducted by Chinese think tanks and consultancies that specialize in education. According to one widely cited survey of several thousand people from across the country who graduated in 2018, the proportion of graduates in full-time employment six months after graduation was 73.6%, which is down from 78% in 2014. And how has the government tried to kind of stem this tide? So the government recently announced a series of measures aimed at getting more graduates into full-time employment. One of these measures allows small companies that hire unemployed recent graduates to get a special tax rebate. Another measure involves trying to boost the rate of entrepreneurship among graduates. So if you are a new graduate and you want to start your own business, if your business plan is rated positively by the government, you may be eligible for a state loan with little or even no collateral. And for those graduates who can't get hired and have no passion for entrepreneurship, they can visit one of the many local branches of the government's human resources ministry for one-on-one assistance. And how much of this is just the uh, a rise in the number of people going to university in the first place? There's just a glut of grads because more people are going to uni. At a fundamental level, it has to do with supply and demand. But a recent report published by a think tank in Beijing that specializes in labor research found that there were 1.4 job vacancies for each fresh graduate, and that excludes unskilled work. So in other words, there are enough jobs to go around. The problem is many of these jobs are in second and third tier cities, which may not be the most exciting places to live if you're a young graduate. And the salaries on offer in these places may not pay that much. So in other words, there is an increase in supply, but there are enough jobs, at least right now. So can the state of the Chinese economy be the big factor here? Yes, it certainly has a lot to do with the state of the economy. The country's ongoing trade war with America appears to have slowed down hiring and export and technology industries based on what young job seekers at job fairs have told me. In addition, we have a continuing crackdown on shadow banks, especially peer-to-peer lenders, which have been among the most enthusiastic recruiters of new graduates in recent years. Meanwhile, the National Civil Service, which has always been a preferred destination for fresh graduates, has cut its annual intake to under 15,000 this year, which is the lowest quota in a decade. Another factor is the incredible expansion of the higher education system in China in such a short period of time. Uh, To give you an example, the number of universities in China has increased from just over 1,000 in the year 2000 to around 2,700 today. 
More than a quarter of Chinese universities were founded in the past 12 years alone. So if you're a Chinese employer, you may not be familiar with so many new names. And if you're presented with a CV that lists a no-name university, you may be inclined to dismiss them as degree mills. And this is certainly what I've observed from a couple of trade fairs I attended in Beijing. Some recruiters admit to chucking resumes from these so-called degree mill schools straight into the bin. We've seen a similar dynamic among countries in the West where higher education is held in high regard, is seen as a path to greater mobility and so on, and universities begin to see students as cash cows. You get lots and lots of graduates, but the labor market can't handle it. Is this just China coming to this realization as other countries have already done? I think there's a bit of that, but part of the blame may rest on students themselves in the sense that too many of them may be aiming too high, too early in life, in the words of one professor I interviewed. There are enough jobs to go around. It's just a question of whether these graduates will be applying to those available jobs, many of which are in second and third tier cities and may not pay as well. So it's not the labor market that needs to change, it's the laborers. You could say that. Uh, one job seeker I interviewed calls the mentality the BAT or BUST mentality. And BAT stands for Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, three of the most prestigious companies in China. So the idea is either you aim for the top or you, I guess, stay at home. On this view, much of the resulting unemployment is self-induced. One could even say that instead of blaming the labor market, the attitudes of students need to change. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. It's worse for you than obesity and as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is becoming an increasing problem in the West, especially among the elderly. In the Netherlands, though, an innovative scheme is experimenting with a solution. So there's a care home in Deventer, which is a city in central Holland, called Humanitas. Anna Lankes writes for The Economist. And it's experimenting with students living together with senior residents in, in a care home. Why, why might the students want to be, to be part of such an experiment? Well, a big advantage is that it's free. And the only thing that the students have to do in exchange is prepare and serve a cold evening meal on a fixed weekday evening. And it might give students better access to kind of nicer housing, certainly compared to my student housing. This was of a much higher quality. Um, so one student I spoke to estimated that he'd saved over 10,000 euros in rent. And he says it hasn't impacted at all on his university experience. It's actually proved so popular that in April, when two of the students left the house, around 27 applied to take their place. Um, and I'm remembering my student days and the the days of my fellow students, and I'm not sure we would have been welcome um, in, in the home of, of the elderly. What, what, what's in it for them? Well, several things. One is tangible. One student I spoke to said that the elderly are learning computer skills, for example, because the young people are teaching them to use things like Facebook and social media and the internet. Another is more emotional. Social isolation is a big problem among the very old. The average age of senior residents at Deventer is around 85 to 90 years old. And that's a very socially isolated age group. Around 18% of EU adults, which represents 75 million people or so, see friends and family only once a month. Uh, and that could have serious health consequences. 
How so? How might loneliness affect someone's health beyond the clear mental health aspect? So there was a study um, that compared lots and lots and lots of different papers and came to the conclusion that over the seven-year period that it was looking at, um, lonely people were on average, they had a 26% higher risk of dying. That's becoming a bigger problem because the share of all very old adults living in the EU is expected to grow. And I mean, it, it all certainly sounds good on, on paper. What, what are the participants sort of telling you about the, the nature of the relationships that are being formed here? Anecdotes suggest that the young people have learned important values like patience. So Ono Selbach, who was the first student to move in, says he learned to be more patient as a, as a result of the experience. He says the pace of life is kind of slower in the home. Um, others say that it has enriched their lives because they've developed kind of meaningful relationships they wouldn't otherwise have developed. But are there are there no conflicts and uh, arising from uh, some extremely different lifestyles of, of the of the young and the old? From what I gathered, no. But that may be very specific to this care home because the young people, for example, have like event rooms that you can rent out in the evenings. They sit free, so the young people can have their kind of you know beer pong tournaments and parties and whatever else they do. In in a in a in a promotional video for the home, there's one resident that says the initiative is very gezellig, which which is a Dutch word that roughly means cozy. And she kind of describes how the students sometimes put her in her walker and race her through the hall, and she thinks that's really fun. So, uh, I mean, this sounds this sounds like a good idea. It sounds like it's working. It makes me wonder if it's happening elsewhere. The thing is, a lot of people don't know about these schemes. They haven't heard of them, but there is a lot of interest in them. So, for example, Channel 4 in the UK ran a program called Old People's Home for four-year-olds, and that was a huge hit. And that saw toddlers um, spending six weeks at a care home in Bristol. So there is interest for these things, and it is happening elsewhere. So there are initiatives, similar initiatives in uh, like municipalities across Spain and care homes in Lyon um, and in Cleveland and Ohio. And I wouldn't be surprised if they kept growing because the population share of those, for example, in the EU that are over the over 80 years old is set to more than double by 2080. So it might be something for other countries to to think about and to pursue as well. And there's certainly no shortage of students who like the sound of free rent. No, not at all. Sign me up. Anna, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.